So our passage is Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I'd encourage you to grab your Bible and find it. Isaiah 10, beginning of verse 1, what we have in front of us today is, using the Bible's terminology, a woe, W-O-E, a woe. A woe is an exclamation of judgment. It's a pronunciation of impending sorrow. It's a prediction of doom upon a person. And if you have read your Bible much, you've seen this. Jesus used this format to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Basically, it's a way of saying to people, you have rebelled against God's ways and it's going to go badly for you soon. Woe unto you. Sorrow is coming unto you. That's what we have in front of us today. It may not be the cheerful message you were hoping for, but I promise there is cheer in here. So hang with me. Isaiah prophesies woe upon several different groups of people throughout his book. We've already seen some back in chapter 5. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking. Those are some examples. Today, he is pronouncing woe upon those who decree iniquitous decrees. Now, just like the group that was here in person, I'm sure there's some resistance in you to receiving this passage, not because you disagree with it, but because you cannot see how it is applicable to you as we approach it. Uh, you might be feeling like this: these people who were decreeing iniquitous decrees did so about 2,700 years ago, and so what does it have to do with me sitting in my living room, my kitchen in the year 2020? You might be saying somewhere deep inside, I don't decree iniquitous decrees, so what does this have to do with me? You may be saying, I don't even know what these words mean. What does a, and what is an iniquitous decree? Well, I promise you, if there's, if there's anything in you that feels like this passage is not going to be applicable to you, I promise you it is. This is a passage very much for us as individuals and as a church, for sure. It will leave us Fearing Jesus in the appropriate way, it will leave us hoping in Jesus, and it will leave us clearer about our role as citizens of Jesus' kingdom here and now in this world. So let's work through it together, and let's keep an open heart and an open mind. So let's read verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression. In other words, woe to those who make evil laws. Now, we know the people of Israel and Judah back then, the, the lawmakers and the officials, had a corruption problem. We've seen already that they loved bribery. And we've seen, uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 23, and chapter 5, verse 23, that the ruling class, they ran after gifts and bribes and neglected justice, especially for the most vulnerable people in society. they If a poor widow had a problem, if that poor widow didn't have money, they wouldn't even hear her calls. They neglected, um, if you were guilty and you had money, you could go scot-free. If you're innocent and you didn't have money, you could be locked up. Uh, they, they were completely corrupt in how they went about their law. And so here what we see, what's added to this teaching about how corrupt they were, was that they didn't just practice these things, they wrote these things into their legal system. It was official. And so 
Woe unto them, Isaiah says. And now as we get into verse 2, we see the effects of this systemic evil. It says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression, lawmakers who make evil laws. Verse 2, To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Widows and fatherless, we know, are the epitome of vulnerability in this ancient society. For us, marriage has a a lot to do with romance, at least in the beginning stages. You get married because of some romantic love. There may be other factors, but romantic love is absolutely a big part of it in our American culture. Um, For them, marriage was much more of an economic proposition. They got married. I'm sure romance was some, maybe somehow a part of it, but in a large part, it was about land and property and resources and family connections and continuing the family lineage, bearing children. That, that was a great deal of what marriage was about back then. And so if you didn't have a husband or a father in the household, that whole family was put in an extremely vulnerable position. Now, the, originally, God's law was meant to care for people in that spot, But when it was perverted like it was here, these people were extremely vulnerable. They didn't have, likely, they didn't have land or property or resources or family connections to protect them. And so they were at the mercy of the public officials to do what they were supposed to do and take care of them. But obviously, based on the imagery here in verse 2, they weren't doing that. They were doing quite the opposite. It says that the widows would be their spoil. Spoil means goods taken by force, stolen by force. It makes me think about a pirate on a ship. That's what the word spoil brings to mind. So I can picture a pirate on his pirate ship with his telescope and he looks out and he sees another ship on the horizon. And judging by what he sees, feels like he can probably overcome them by force and take all the goods on board, all the money, all the jewels, all the um, cloth, all the food, whatever it is they're transporting, he can steal it. And so the pirate goes, destroys the people, the ship, doesn't care about any of that, just cares about getting the spoil, getting the goods by force for himself. This is how these lawmakers looked at widows, poor defenseless widows. The other image it gives us in verse 2 there is that of prey. It says that they may make the fatherless their prey. So prey is an animal hunted and killed for food to consume for your own benefit. So they looked at orphans, children without protective fathers, the same way a hawk might look down on a little animal scurrying across a field, a little field mouse or something. That's what they saw when they saw the orphans. Now, this is always bad. I don't think anybody watching this now or who will watch it in the future disagrees that this is a bad thing. Nobody is uh, pro-oppression of widows and orphans, for sure. It's always bad. But it's especially bad here among God's people who were called out from the world to do the exact opposite of all this. They were supposed to represent God's justice and righteousness. And here they had completely flipped it. It's in their hymn book. Psalm 82, 3 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. It's in their wisdom book, the book of Proverbs 14, 31. 
Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him and is definitely in their law books. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So he had laid it out very clearly with them early on, the rules, the expectations, and the consequences if they rebelled against them. Sometimes kids will get in trouble and their parents did a poor job of explaining the rules in the first place and they didn't tell them what the consequences would be. And so it's legitimately a shock to them when they get in trouble. This is not the situation here with Israel. They knew better than this. And yet they had allowed systemic oppression to enter into their legal practices. And now that they had done that, the day of reckoning was upon them, as we see in verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? Who will you, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? The day of reckoning was coming. The day when they would be called to account, judgment day. Ruin from afar refers to Assyria, the foreign nation God was raising up to come and clobber Israel in judgment and discipline. And when that happens, when it would happen soon after this, all the gain that they had accumulated from preying on widows and the fatherless would be of no help to them, be of no benefit. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you you leave your wealth? Verse 4, Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Maybe these lawmakers were born into this corrupt system and they didn't know any better. Maybe as they came up in their career and learned the practices that they would inherit once they were in charge, all the mentors and people they respected operated this way and maybe had some way of justifying it so that they genuinely perhaps thought that they were doing right. Maybe they just thought this was the way things worked. I don't know. But now through Isaiah, they have to see it for what it is. And when this day of judgment comes, it would be inescapable. They would be confronted with their guilt and there would be no buffer between them and the consequences Nothing would remain but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. They'd be huddled with prisoners and stacked among the corpses in the street. So there it is. There is the woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. Now, the obvious question for us is, what are we supposed to do with this now? We know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and instruction and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. What are we supposed to do with this passage? Well, there is an easy mistake to make when responding to a passage like this in the Old Testament. It's an easy mistake that we are all prone to whenever we read any social justice-themed passage in the Bible. Our first instinct might be, and you may be feeling this as you hear this, to go and try to right whatever wrongs we can find in our society. 
to identify iniquitous decrees in America and pre- make uh, pressure the lawmakers to change those laws. Uh, we, we may be tempted to jump from this passage and write our congressman about something, uh, post the most eviscerating meme on social media we can find, join a protest movement, some, some action to right the wrongs. What I want to argue here is we try to respond to this passage, is that that is the wrong place to start. Now, I'm not saying that all those things are bad and that Christians should not do those things. I'm saying it's the wrong place to begin because it leaves out something critical. Or more specifically, it leaves out someone critical. Ultimately, this day of judgment that these evil lawmakers are going to face was a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord the ultimate final day of judgment when King Jesus is going to return and right all the wrongs and bring judgment to all the wicked. The king of Isaiah 9 is the one who ultimately is going to make right the wrongs of Isaiah chapter 10. If we were just reading Isaiah through and we weren't breaking it up into these individual sermons, we would have just read Isaiah 9 six through seven. So this would be ringing in our ears as we get to chapter 10, verses one through four. The prophecy of the coming king, who we know to be Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our hope for justice and righteousness is founded only in King Jesus Christ. Not our political actions, not our social media posts, not our protest movements, not our letters to congressmen, Jesus Christ. That is the hope for justice and righteousness, ultimately. Israel's leaders got it wrong. That's what Isaiah 10, 1 through 4 is about. The coming king was going to get it right. That's what Isaiah as a whole is about. That's why the New Testament quotes from Isaiah 55 times. It's the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. The second only behind the Psalms, which is quoted about 70 times. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. You and I are not the fulfillment of Isaiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. He is the key that unlocks the understanding and application of every Old Testament passage. So the point here is that King Jesus is the good lawmaker in contrast with these evil lawmakers. He decrees virtuous decrees. He writes freedom. He welcomes the needy into justice. He gives poor people their rights. He cares for widows. He protects the fatherless. And he leads the kingdom in which this is the culture. And he's coming back to make that kingdom full and final one day very soon. Now, this is such timely good news for our world that is in such chaos right now. 
we know the good lawmaker that people long for. We get to live in the new society that everybody longs for, that is coming one day. We get to live in that society now. We get to be a part of this kingdom of God, not because we were so just and righteous and we did everything right, but by God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. As we read this passage, perhaps you identified most with the oppressed. Maybe you're in a season of life when you feel downtrodden and weak and vulnerable, and so you identified with the widows and the fatherless. Or maybe you identified with God himself or the prophet Isaiah, and you felt in you a uh, self-righteous anger that anybody would operate this way. But I think the Bible would have us identify mostly with the lawmakers who were going to face this judgment, because apart from Jesus, we would face the exact same consequences that they had coming to them. Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. So we can't have a self-righteous response to this passage. It has to be a humble, Christ-oriented response. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. We, as Christians, are just and righteous only because we are in Christ Jesus. We get to be citizens of his kingdom only by his mercy and grace. Otherwise, we too should be cast out. We get to live by Jesus's good laws, loving others as ourselves because of the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of in ninth grade when I was granted access to honors classes instead of college prep classes. We called our basic classes when I was in ninth grade college preparatory classes and our more advanced classes honors classes. I was a bad student. I did not apply myself. I did not have the grades to be in honors classes, and therefore I was right where I deserved to be in the college preparatory classes. Throughout middle school, that hadn't been a big deal, but in ninth grade, I had one class in particular, a college preparatory class, and it was a nightmare. It was total anarchy. The kids in there were so badly behaved. The teacher hated our guts. that She came in ready for a battle, and she was right because everybody was behaved so poorly. And she treated us like little babies. She would give us a pencil if we behaved that day in the ninth grade. Um, it was miserable. Uh, I, I hated being in there. And it was so bad that I actually went to the administration of the school to see if there was any way I could change that class. And they found a way, but the only way I could change was to change all of my, my college preparatory classes to honors level classes. I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the record for that. I, there was no indicator that I could handle that but they let me do it anyway. And all of a sudden I was whisked out of this depraved society of this class that I was in into this whole new society of these honors classes. And there was a whole new culture there. Whereas the culture was, let's try to do as little work as we can, be as disrespectful as we can, and get away with as much as we can without getting in serious trouble. Now the culture was, let's do our work. Let's actually learn. Let's still have a good time, but within the scope of the rules set for us by the teacher. This old culture, there was a dynamic of uh, tension between the students and the teacher. In this new culture, it was a very, very pleasant dynamic. Teachers actually liked their students and enjoyed their classes. It was a whole new world. I didn't get into that because I earned it. I got into that because somebody decided to be merciful and gracious to me. And once I was there... I started to behave like everybody else around me. I started to do my work and study and get good grades and have a good relationship with the teacher. 
This is kind of what it is like becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We deserve to live in the world we've created with our sin. But out of God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, he allows us to be granted citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. In this culture, we oppress the poor. We take advantage of the weak. That's just how we do it. In this culture, it's completely different. In this culture, we care for the vulnerable. We protect the weak because that's what King Jesus does. That is the culture of the kingdom of God. That's who we are now in Jesus. So back to the question, what do we do with Isaiah 10, 1 through 4 as modern day American Christians in the year 2020? First, we renew our hope in the great lawmaker, the good lawmaker, Jesus Christ. He is going to bring judgment one day in the day of the Lord. He is going to bring about his good law in this world when he returns. Second, we renew our commitment to living by his laws now, ahead of time, in advance. We live the kingdom culture now. So in our relationships, we treat people right. In our work, we treat people right. In the decisions we make, we treat people right. In our plans, we treat people right. In our voting, and our political activities, we treat people right. In every sphere of our life, we treat people right. Why? Not because we hope to create some American utopia. We know that that is never going to happen. We act this way because we are part of a future society. We are part of the kingdom of God under King Jesus' leadership, and this is who we are now. This is what citizens of the kingdom of God are like. Whether we're in America or South America or Africa or wherever we find ourselves, whatever time in history, wherever, this is our nation. This is our culture. Now, I bring this up in our application of this because I think that we so easily get askew from this and we skip all of that and we start in the wrong places when we try to go about being good people and seek justice. We start with the wrong slogans and we get off course. You can't start with the slogan, Make America Great Again. And you can't start with the slogan, Black Lives Matter. You have to start with the slogan, Thy Kingdom Come. And only then, once that is your slogan, that is your dominating passion, the kingdom of God coming, Jesus' rule and reign being worked out over all creation, only under that can those other slogans find a place that make any sense. They're sub-slogans, but they cannot be the slogan. Only under the slogan, Thy Kingdom Come, can the slogan, Make America Great Again, make any sense. And only under the slogan, Thy Kingdom Come, can the slogan, Black Lives Matter, make any sense. We've got to start at the right place to get any of the rest of it right. If we start with those other slogans first, we will sow false hope of an American utopia instead of true hope in the kingdom of God. We will over-identify with a political party and under-identify with Jesus Christ. We will worship our political leaders and be apathetic toward our Savior and Lord. We will join on the bandwagon of misguided movements and abandon the kingdom movement. We will create a best-case scenario in which some things may improve in America, 
But when Jesus returns, everybody goes to hell because nobody's ever heard of him. I want to be really clear as we land the plane. I am not saying that we as Christians should disengage from public life, disengage from society, disengage from politics. I'm saying we should be fully engaged in all those things, but as kingdom citizens first, as kingdom citizens first, and only then will any of the rest of it make any sense, have any lasting meaning or impact, have any eternal value whatsoever. If we skip thy kingdom come, all other slogans are meaningless. I'm saying we need to renew our commitment to live by Jesus' laws now as his people. We need to renew our hope in King Jesus because ultimately he's the only one who decrees perfectly virtuous decrees, who writes freedom, who welcomes the needy into justice, who gives the poor their rights, who cares for widows, who protects the fatherless. He is the one leading this kingdom that everybody longs for. He is the only hope. And he is coming back. So I'm saying as we close, let's not forget the end game, where all this is headed. And to make that point, I'll read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11, through 11, and this will be the, the end of the sermon. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden disaster will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you were all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, and having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope, salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are we so whether we are awake or asleep we might live with him therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing let's among all the confusion and all the conflicting messages and all the turmoil of our times let's remember king jesus and let's live as citizens of his kingdom let's pray Father, I pray that you would help us do so, that you would help us avoid the fate of these evil lawmakers, that you would help us every time we see oppression and iniquity in our own system and culture, that it would bring to mind King Jesus on his throne, that it would renew in us a commitment to Jesus as our King, and that we Christians would so live out his kingdom ethics and his kingdom values that the world would look to us and see peace, and stability, and security, and sanity, and that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified among us in the way we live so fully that many people would be added to the kingdom, that the original movement, the kingdom of God movement, would progress in our own hearts, in our church, in our country, and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.